At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. In today's episode, we have Andrew Ng, a distinguished authority in the field of AI, known for founding Deep Learning AI and multiple other ventures. He also co-founded and led Google Brain and serves as an adjunct professor in Stanford University's Computer Science Department. Alongside him is Vijay Pandey, who is the founding partner of A16Z Bio and Health. Andrew has thought deeply about the implications of integrating AI into many areas of our lives going so far as to put out a public social media call for people who believe AI is dangerous to speak with him. Humanity is not deliberately out to, say, cause tigers to go extinct. But, you know, there is a possible future where we may accidentally do something that maybe, hopefully not, makes a bunch of species, and unfortunately it's already happened in some cases, makes them go extinct. So will AI almost be another species that through its own motivations for survival or whatever, either maliciously or accidentally makes humans go extinct? I don't see how AI, just because it's very powerful, becomes this other species with its own will. So those scenarios both seem very unlikely to me. Andrew also talked about how he sees AI becoming foundational to many industries and how that future could come about. And so with my team providing AI technical expertise and Renate providing deep expertise about you know romantic relationship mentoring, we're able to build a pretty unique product that then is now kind of on its way. So I find that that recipe of my team providing the AI deep tech expertise and then partnering with a subject matter expert in anything from romantic relationships to maritime shipping to financial services to health, you know, healthcare, all of these domains where I'm much less of an expert that often creates a recipe for building something exciting. You're listening to BioEats World from A16Z. Andrew, thank you so much for joining BioEats World. Now, thank you, DJ, for having me. Always fun to chat with you. You've been working in AI for the last couple of decades. And when I think about uh, some of your early work, uh, some of the things that really stands out to me was, especially that uh, deep learning paper, I think Jeff Dean was on it, where you fed YouTube into DNN. And it was especially interesting, the interpretability that you could have uh, with that, where you could look at intermediate layers and you could find there was like a neuron that corresponded to like a human face a neuron that corresponded to a cat, since, of course, this is YouTube, so there's plenty of cats on the internet and so on. I would love to hear your take on uh, what working in this space for a couple decades has been like, what the arc of what's gotten you here and gotten the world here. I know since some people, it feels like AI suddenly came out of nowhere. There have been a few moments where it suddenly stepped up. So I think 15 years ago, that was around the time, you know, 10, 15 years ago, when I started and led the Google Brain team that generated that infamous Google Cat result that you alluded to. 
that was when deep learning neural networks started to work really well. And then over the last year or two, generative AI started to work really well. And I think in the last decade or several decades, there have been these moments where there's a breakthrough and it feels like, wow, AI came out of nowhere. But I, I feel like this is like maybe the fourth time in my life, you know, <laughs> AI came out of nowhere and it took a step up. But this is exciting. Every single time, I think the activities and buzz and value created from AI did genuinely go to a higher level than before. Well, one topic that I've seen you speak really passionately to has been uh, recent sort of questions of AI safety. The most extreme sort of exaggerated wording like AI is going to kill us all or something like that. And then on the other extreme, you have people who feel like those claims are really massively overblown. I personally feel like at least where we are right now, there's little evidence to think that there's a doomsday scenario. But I'm curious sort of what your take is. And, and you've been really engaging with people, I think, to really try to understand various people's perspectives. I'm curious what you've learned so far. It was it was definitely a surprise to me when, you know, very uh, prominent and scientists I deeply respect, uh, Jeff Hinton, Yasha Benjo, yeah. started raising the alarm about AI potentially leading to human extinction. And extinction, yes. that's a big concept. And after speaking to quite a lot of people candidly, I still don't see how AI poses any meaningful risk of human extinction. AI has other harms, you know, bias, fairness, inaccuracy leading to kinetic damage in healthcare clearly is critical, but extinction, I don't see a realistic path. I think there are two arguments for AI leading to human extinction. One is um, if it's so powerful that it enables maybe some very angry person to create a bioweapon, but one, even bioweapons have a hard time leading to human extinction. And second, imagine if one angry person could create a bioweapon. Imagine all the wonderful cures we're going to have <laughs> with the thousands of you know smart, educated, uh, smart scientists that just want to help help medical conditions. Um, then the other argument for AI extinction, as far as I can understand it, is maybe AI almost becomes another species that competes with humanity for resources. So today, hum humanity is not deliberately out to say, cause tigers to go extinct. But, you know, there is a possible future where we accidentally do something that mm -hmm. maybe, mm -hmm. hopefully not, makes a bunch of species, and unfortunately it's already happened in some cases, makes them go extinct. So will AI almost be another species that through its own motivations for survival or whatever, either maliciously or accidentally makes humans go extinct? I don't see how AI, just because it's very powerful, becomes this other species species with its own will. So those scenarios both seem very unlikely to me. To, to me, the unfortunate thing is I'm seeing high school kids think, boy, if AI might make humanity go extinct, that sounds bad. I don't want to be any part of that. And that's really tragic because a lot of high school kids, they would have better careers. They would have a lot more, they would have exciting opportunities if you yes. jump into AI. And some high school kids are turning away from AI because of this, which I think is, is really unfortunate. Actually, that's particularly unfortunate because it seems like it's such a foundational technology to so many different areas to come for the future. It's like turning away from the printing press or, or you've used a sort of analogy of electricity before. When we've gone through every industrial revolution, there's always been people who have felt actually that even electricity itself would, would kill us all as well. Maybe this is just part of the human nature. Yeah. When deep learning started to work really well 10, 15, maybe 10 years ago, um, there was also that wave of AI approaching artificial intelligence. I think Elon Musk said AI might be summoning the demon or something. Demon. Yeah. I recall something uh, like was, that, yeah. 
And, and I would respectfully submit that the Lost Decade will summon a lot more angels and demons. <laughs> not, not to dismiss the house of AI, there are some. But yeah. the, the thing that was surprising about this wave was, yeah, it was it was really people like Jeff Hinton and Joshua Benjo yeah. talk about AI extinction. Uh, I spoke with both of them. And I, actually, I, I, on my social uh, Twitter and LinkedIn, I actually posted short videos of you know snippet my conversations with them. I, I Again, just to give them credit, they're definitely well-meaning, honest, very deep thinkers, I think on the point of risk extinction, I personally just have a different view than than theirs at this point in time. But um, well, and you bring up an interesting point that by concentrating on something so extreme as extinction, which seems hard to imagine how that could mechanistically happen, it it maybe takes away from the the true challenges of bias and and so on that you talked about. That maybe is where we really should be putting our attention. Even about ten years ago, when deep learning started to work really well, there were startups that were using AGI hype. Mm-hmm. to successfully raise their valuation. So there are the companies that are making arguments like, my technology is so dangerous, I might accidentally <laughs> destroy the world. So let's talk about how much my company is worth. I really did not find that argument tasteful, but unfortunately it was effective. So. Yeah. Well, actually that reminds me, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on AGI itself. How do you think that unrolls? Like how far away would you say we are to what people would feel comfortable generally considering AGI, this uh, you know artificial generalized intelligence? There's a very specific definition of AGI. AI, they could do anything right to the, to the human, any intellectual task, uh, a mental task, intellectual task that a human or other mammal could do. Very clear, GPT-4 is not AGI. Um, I do see, strangely, people creating fuzzy definitions of AGI, kind of backtracking from I'm not sure why. And if you if you create a fuzzy definition of AGI, then I guess it's either to clear success. But the funny thing about the definition of AGI is um, biological path to intelligence, that is, say, humans, is very different than the digital path to intelligence, you know, such as large language models. And the funny thing about the definition of AGI is it's asking the digital path to intelligence which is already far more intelligent than any human today on some dimensions, but not everything. Yes. It's taking the digital path and asking to benchmark it on the biological path. And is that useful? You know, sure, it's fine to do it, but it doesn't seem like the only valuable benchmark because GPT-4 knows far more facts about a lot of things, right? Just knows a lot of stuff that no human. But but like, can up. you give an example of something that you would expect from an AGI system that a GPT four can't do? One of the things that is an intellectual task is learning new things. Yana Quinn's been talking about if you have AGI, then like any other teenager, should be able to learn to drive a car in twenty hours or so. Yeah. But I feel like there's so many tasks that you can get a human to learn, and part of the generality of it is a human brain can learn an amazing diversity of different tasks. I hope we'll get to AGI, you know, maybe even within a lifetime. I would love to see AGI in the next, I don't know, 30 or 50 years, maybe. I think it'd be fantastic, but we're also very obviously not there today. And someone that says we are is just trying to, using a fuzzy and, and not quite the right definition of AGI. And how much do you think we then have to have AI in our world that it has to sort of learn by trial and error, almost like an infant? does in the early days with walking and moving and how much of being in our world is important for that? Or do you think you could have just a, an agent like GPT sitting on the internet and actually still have AGI? You know, it's a tough question. It, it's been interesting how by consuming, you know, let's say hundreds of billions or even more north of a trillion words, a large language model 
that clearly has never experienced a sunset mm-hmm. because it's only experienced words, it can describe with surprisingly good detail and conviction what a sunset looks like. Seeing the whole world through the lens of text is learned to give the appearance of understanding a lot of non-text-based things. And I think, okay, just, just to compare, if you look at what our eyes actually see, you know, the human eye, we actually see the world through this very thin straw that our phobia, right, gives us access to. And we think we see the world, but our eyes are blind spots, our peripheral vision is actually very blurry. We actually all see the world through a very thin straw, but we think we see the world. And a lot of computation going on too, for what you think is a CCD, but is really just, you know, a lot of things, a lot of processing happening. Yeah. We all actually have a very partial view of the world, mm-hmm. um, but we managed to build a world model that then maybe because we're deluding ourselves or hopefully because it's a pretty accurate world model, we have some understanding of how the world works. And it's been interesting how a large language model seeing the world just through the lens of text that people have written actually builds a rich world model. And I see large language models as building rich world models and having a decent understanding of important parts of the world. It's an imperfect analogy because I had friends that were immigrants to the U.S. as kids, and they learned about the U.S. from just watching TV. And they watched a lot of TV as kids. And then eventually they go to school too. But it almost feels like, you know, these large language models are learning in that way. And in some cases, maybe literally in time will go over YouTube and so on. It's limited, but it, it still is a pretty big aperture on, on human nature, having all the words and all the pictures now. Yeah. And I think it's not complete. I think even though you learn a lot about the world from text, you're still missing a few things. Um, like really difficult to learn from text how to ride a bicycle. To ride a bicycle, you just got to do it and fall many times. and then. Well, yeah, the examples like driving car, riding a bicycle that you're talking about are examples that you have to have a body to do. And would you say that that those uh, that is a key part of how you're conceptualizing AGI or there are non-corporal tasks that you'd associate with AGI that GPT-4 can't do now? Oh, they're definitely non-corporal tasks. But just just be concrete about driving a car. I think we don't need a robot to sit in the driver's seat, but okay. to send electrical signals to drive by wire. I think we still don't know how to do that. Yeah. But I think non-corporal tasks, if we look at um, you know jobs that humans do, every job done by human today is because someone that was once an infant that knew nothing eventually learned to do that job. And I think there are many jobs you can hire someone entry level for, and they'll be trained up in a few days that really, I today, at least I certainly don't know how to train up GPT-4 to do the vast majority of jobs that are done by people in today's world. Yeah. It would be very interesting. I don't know if anyone's done this, is to take uh, some multimodal LLM and then put in some driving simulation into it. And then, you know, the LLM outputs like turn left, turn right, brake, beat up, slow down. How long would it take with some sort of reinforcement learning to learn how to drive? Yeah, I think the text revolution is clearly here. Yeah. Uh, one revolution I think is coming down the pipe is the vision transformer revolution. Mm-hmm. The text transformer paper was published in 2017 by the former team, Google Brain and some others. And that led to GPT-2, GPT-3, you know, the, the Turing, Megatron, Instruct GPT, and then eventually chat GPT and Bard and Bing chat and so on. Um, what's not yet widely appreciated is that the Vision Transformer paper was published in 2020, also out of Google Brain, um, three years later. And since then, if you look at the computer vision conferences, I was at CVPR, a computer vision conference a few months ago, I think that something's going on in computer vision. I think one of the next major category breakthroughs will be image analysis starting to work really well. 
So well, one of my teams landing AI is uh, building tools for computer vision using these vision transformer capabilities. But more broadly, I think that a lot of the stuff, the, all this excitement and revolution we've seen in text processing, I think it's coming to vision. And people say multimodal, but I think it's really, yeah, it, it is multimodal. But I think vision capabilities is something to work much better. And I think it's interesting to plan ahead for that, for self-driving and for other applications. As you know, my interest is in AI and life sciences and healthcare, but you're involved with that as well as maybe more broadly in application infrastructure. I'm curious sort of on your take for what you think will be successful startups in, in this intersection with AI and, and other things right now. What are the things that you're excited about? Yeah, so my team AI Fund operates as a venture studio, meaning we um, partner with entrepreneurs to build startups from scratch. And one of the you know, tricky concepts to understand about AI is it's a general purpose technology, right? Kind of like electricity, um, but that means it's useful for a lot of different things, not just one thing. So if I ask what's electricity good for, well, it's actually useful for a lot of things. And so too with AI is useful for more relevant advertising and for medical diagnosis and for um, logistics operations to save fuel and for financial services and on and on and on. And so what's happened in the last decade was different teams uh, were fleshing out a lot of concrete use cases for AI, supervised learning. And now with generative AI in our toolbox, there's a lot of work that lies ahead of us, which I think will easily take another decade, mm -hmm. maybe much longer, to identify and execute on the concrete use cases. Because large language models, they're not useful just for ChatGPT, although ChatGPT is a fantastic tool. You know, it's useful for processing you know, legal documents and financial documents. It's useful for many flavors of customer service chatbot. It's useful in education. It's useful for you know, auto-grading and better teaching. It's just useful for all of these things. And I think all the concrete use cases, so many of them, is still a lot of work to be fleshed out. So, so my team AI funds learned a lot of best practices for how to do this. Anything that you would share or anything counterintuitive you think that makes building sort of this generation of startups with AI different than what people did with SaaS or people did with mobile or people did in early internet and so on? I think there's strong analogies to all of these early waves of um, platform innovation, where with SaaS those are, or mobile, there were new platforms created by you know the phone companies or the cloud players uh, that enable a lot of applications to be built. Even though today, a lot of the buzz and excitement is on the infrastructure layer, technology layer, uh, the people that sell these fantastic API services. Some to earlier ways of platform transformation, the only way for the technology layer to be successful is if the application layer is even more successful so it can generate enough revenue to pay you know, these infrastructure builders. I see the infrastructure layer as hyper-competitive. Look at all the startups chasing OpenAI. Yep. So my team plays at the infrastructure layer only occasionally and carefully when we think we have a technology advantage. Because I think with that tech advantage, it earns you a chance at being one of the mega winners. But then I end up spending more, even more of my time at the application layer and exploring the application of AI to many verticals. And for different applications, I find um, sometimes you find an application sector and we go, huh, large market opportunity, but not that many competitors. And the media just doesn't cover that much the different applications. But I think there's a lot of opportunities there as well. Well, you make a good point because at least per your analogy, maybe there'll only be a couple platforms and there are therefore a few infrastructure companies that do very well, but there could be many applications. I think so, yeah. So in the case of the mobile revolution, 
you know, two players did fantastically well. So many companies wish they were one of them. So like a- Apple and more. Google, are you thinking about? Like Apple, yeah. iPhone, and Android? I, I was an Android, right? That's yeah, basically yeah. it. And then for the clouds, you know, like three companies, I guess, in the US did fantastically well, right? Azure, AWS, and GCP. But then the only way that iOS did so well is because there were far more applications like Uber and Airbnb and Tinder and many more that were built on top of this new platform. Um, one illustrative example, um, I was recently working with AI Fund some time back and decided we want to do something on applying AI to romantic relationship coaching. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm an AI guy. I feel like I know nothing about romantic relationships. And if you don't believe me, you can ask my wife and she'll confirm. I have a feeling she would disagree with you, but... but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> but so the way we built this was uh, we wound up getting together with uh, the former CEO of Tinder, Renata Nyborg. And because she ran Tinder, she knows way more about, you know, romantic relationships than anyone else I know. And so with my team providing AI technical expertise and Renate providing deep expertise about, you know, romantic relationship mentoring, we're able to build a pretty unique product that then is now kind of on its way. So I find that that recipe of my team providing the AI deep tech expertise and then partnering with a subject matter expert in anything from romantic relationships to maritime shipping to financial services to health, you know, healthcare, all of these domains where I'm much less of an expert that often creates a recipe for building something exciting. So you were making really powerful analogy to previous platforms and previous you know tech revolutions uh, like SaaS and mobile and so on. And you made the arguments about how actually it looked like uh, a lot of the value was for platforms went to incumbents and therefore apps you know were really valuable on top. I'm curious what you think might be different about um, AI versus SaaS versus mobile. Like, is there something that's different or do you think it's going to play out kind of in go-to-market in kind of a similar way? Will there be a few incumbents that become the platforms and then we all build apps on top? I think we're going through a major technology revolution. And so there are opportunities for incumbents and for new entrants. Mm -hmm. So with cloud, you know, even though um, AWS, GCP, and Azure did fantastically well, I think the incumbents, they look like they're well-positioned to do fine, but they could also be exciting opportunities for new players. How many of the new players at the infrastructure level will end up being those mega winners? I don't know. But again, there could be some, and that could be very exciting and valuable. I think the infrastructure is hyper-competitive. So part of the startup businesses is, yeah, what's your theory for why you have a shot at being one of the mega winners? I think the incumbents have a huge distribution advantage to the existing customer base. Most startups, it's difficult to have that huge distribution advantage. So I tend to look to a technology advantage, but there could be other strategies as well, I guess, to create a theory for why it could win there. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Having worked in this field now for many decades, I think you have a really unique position to try to think about where things are going, having seen how we got here. It's always tricky to make predictions, but I'd love to get your take on where you think AI, sort of these foundational technologies will be in 5, 10, 20 years, if you'd be willing to hazard a guess. Yeah, for the last decade, the dominant driver of value in AI was supervised learning, right? Learning to label things. It is still very valuable today, but we're adding to our toolbox generative AI as another major technology that expands to some of the things we can now do with AI. So I think for the next decade, there'll continue to be technology breakthroughs. Like I think vision transformers are going to be a big thing. But with multiple tools in a toolbox of general purpose technology, I think we'll all be busy 
identifying and executing, building to concrete use cases in a lot of different um, industries. There's one other trend I'm excited about, which is I think even though we've been talking about AI for 10, 15 years, a lot of the value is still concentrated in the tech world, really consumer software internet. And I think the reason for that is yeah, about 10 years ago, my friends and I figured out a recipe where uh, for a company like Google, you can have dozens or even like 100 plus engineers write one piece of software, say to serve more relevant ads, and apply one piece of software to a billion users and generate massive financial returns. But it turns out that once you go outside consumer software internet, hardly anyone has 100 million or a billion users they can apply one piece of software to. Instead, in healthcare, Every hospital is different. It's yes, very sir. difficult to train one AI model uh-huh. and apply it to every single hospital. Every hospital needs you know, kind of to tune to the way they code their electronic health records. And in manufacturing, every factory makes something different. So there's no one model that works on all factories. Making Every, every factory has their own pictures. So to do inspection, you need their own, they need their own AI model. And so what I see is, Unlike the billion or multi-billion dollar problems in consumer software internet, I see a lot of five million dollar problems that we couldn't execute on because you can't hire a hundred engineers to work on a five million dollar problem. But the trend that I find exciting is um, with tools like large language models that lets you write prompts, as well as a technology called data-centric AI with low-code, no-code, more low-code than no-code at this point, but really low-code, it's becoming much more feasible for the IT personnel in a hospital or IT personnel in a manufacturing plant to customize the AI system on their own data yeah. uh, and then realize that $5 million of value. But the trick, of course, is there are tens of thousands of these $5 million value problems. So I think the total value in this long tail could be even greater hmm. than the very small number of multi-billion dollar problems um, in the head. But that, that, I think, was an important trend to take the value of AI which has been concentrated in consumer internet tech so far and to take it to all other industries, including healthcare, but other industries. That's really fascinating. I mean, can you think of another example in technology like that ever before? Uh, Because generally, you know, everyone has the same Microsoft Word. Everyone has the same pieces of software, even if you're in a hospital or you're in a shoe store or whatever. This seems different in that you can sort of low-code, no-code tailor things with prompting such that one thing could be many different things. Yeah, so companies like WordPress you know, or Wix and other website builders, building websites is usually really difficult. We have very few websites. Um, and so the businesses that supply the tools to let a lot of people do it, they did well. Uh, but then also, you know, there's so many websites out there in the world. And so lots of businesses are able to create a website and generate value from their website using these tools. So some of these tools will be fully open source. I think some of these tools will be provided by businesses, but I think these tools, it it lets lots of custom AI systems be built. I think we need that. We haven't had that until recently. No. And and if you look at the things like your know, EHRs, I mean, the data is clearly not on the internet. So Google and Bing don't have access to this data. I think hospitals, because they have their own unique ways of coding EHRs in every single hospital, they need their own AI system trained on their own EHR. Yeah. So how do we provide the tools to the hostile IT personnel so that you don't need, you know, like 30 PhDs in AI writing really difficult software? I think the technology is prompting a data-centric AI. I think it's kind of getting there to make this possible. Yeah, that's very exciting because it allows people who are not even just not AI coders, but just maybe not programmers at all. 
in principle to do things that normally require a programming shop. Yeah, yes. I think we're shifting to other world where it makes sense for everyone to learn just a little bit of coding. I don't think everyone should be a software engineer, but just like I think, you know, we, we today we teach every kid to read and write. Yeah. I think over the last year, the barrier to entry to AI is now low enough and the value to AI is high enough that I would love to see every school teach kids just a little bit of coding. Yeah. So what's the next big breakthrough that make people go, wow? Yeah. So in the case of Vision Transformers, you know, we've seen the demos of GPT-4 with Vision and uh, Bards with Vision is already out there. It's nice. It's nice work. I think we have a long ways to go there still. I don't think we're yet at the... Uh, I, I think I actually have a lot of room for improvement for those capabilities still. Yeah, but it yeah. is exciting what's already been accomplished. And then honestly, longer term, I see a lot of technical innovations. It's really difficult. I think a lot of the wows will be still the concrete applications to be worked out. Um, well, certainly if you think about it from the point of view of the iPhone analogy, you know, Apple was putting out new iPhones and the early iPhones had some rapid development, but you know, the difference between 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. I don't think I could ex explain to you what the advances in those iPhone models are off the top of my head, but that the apps themselves have been continuing to, to have great impact. So I think your analogy feels very strong that it's the time to be sort of thinking about building the apps because the infrastructure plumbing is being uh, built as we talk. Yeah, and I think when, when iOS released the app store, that unlocked a lot of value. And then even little things, when iOS started to sub support subscription businesses, mm -hmm. that, most many people don't know this, but that unlocked a ridiculous amount of value as well. So I think we'll see those capabilities on Gen AI as well. When deep learning started to work really well, there's a wave of hype and fears that then died out. I think that the wave of excessive fears will die out in a, maybe in hopefully very small numbers of years, yeah. as small as possible. It leads to the natural question, because I agree with you, but um, are there is there anything that you actually are afraid of, like any concerns that you have with the directions that we're going? I think job displacement is going to be a thing. I'm optimistic for the long term, but um, I mean, we already read you know, in, in newspapers about people whose jobs seem to have gone away because they were in marketing and someone decided they'd rather use a large language model to get lower quality but much cheaper output. Mm -hmm. So I feel like while... This, I think AI, you know, large language models is a net massive value add to society, but because the benefits are spread unevenly, I think we have a responsibility to take care of people whose jobs are affected too. That makes sense. And in principle, that's what we've seen with every industrial revolution, right? And that jobs go away, uh, new jobs get created. Uh, the next generation doesn't isn't sad about the jobs that went, but the transition period can be difficult. We're not going to run out of work run out of work for humans to do anytime soon. In fact, you know, despite all this automation, we're very low unemployment in the United States, uh, different in other countries. But I think conditional basic income to provide upskilling, reskilling, and encourage that, that, that seems, at least at this moment in history, where we still want more people to contribute much more to society, that seems superior to me than universal basic income, but we'll have to see. Oh, fair enough. Um, I think that's probably a great place to end. Thank you so much for joining us on BioWeeds World. Thanks, Vijay. This is fun. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, 
please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying Bioweats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com slash disclosures.